Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about the invention of the book. Now, if you didn't listen to the last episode, you should probably go back and listen to that one first. That was the invention of the book, part one, where we talked about what constitutes a book conceptually, what are the earliest things that might be thought of to count as a book in the archaeological record. Uh, we talked about various materials on which ancient writings were printed, you know, from hard surfaces and steels into things like uh, papyrus and, and parchment and vellum. But today we wanted to come back and talk a little bit more about the overall form of books. And I thought a great place to start with here would be one of the most significant transitions in the history of books, and that is the transition between the scroll and the codex. And to, just to put you in the right frame of mind for this, have you ever thought about how once upon a time you had to rewind books? Oh, absolutely. When you think about the way a scroll works, and indeed how you know some electronic uh, versions uh, of documents work as well, where one is scrolling through the document, uh, it, it is like very much like say the, the ribbon in a VCR tape. It is a, a thing that has a beginning and an end, and uh, and if, if you were to jump around in it, you were going to have to scroll through it. You know, I know there must be uh, some writing attesting to this in the ancient world, but I just wonder if you had like an ancient library, did you have the like the the video store problem of the person who checked out the scroll before you didn't rewind it and you have to take <laughs> it back from the end to the beginning? Yeah, or it was like poorly wound or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it's always the case with, with books. I mean, books are are precious objects and, and were even more precious in the past. Books, scrolls, whatever uh, you know, uh, you want to refer to, this compiled uh, a form of written knowledge. And yeah, if it's something that is communal in nature, you don't want the person before you mistreating it. Right. So, so this world where you had to rewind books, this was, of course, the world of the scroll, which was the most prominent physical form of the book throughout you know, much of the Mediterranean world, North Africa, Europe, the Middle East. Um, and unlike the codex model that we're familiar with today, remember, again, the codex is basically like the books we know today, where there, uh, there's a spine where the pages are attached and you can leaf through the pages to read the text. Uh, the scroll was essentially one really long page that was made by attaching successive sheets of material, usually would be papyrus or parchment, end to end uh, with either glue or with stitching. You could sew them together. And then to read a scroll, of course, as you would make your way through, you would unroll the the long sheet from, uh, from, a, from a winding stick on one end, and then you would roll it up on the other one. And a scroll could unravel either vertically or horizontally, and the direction of the rolling for a particular document often depended on what language was being written, like was the script naturally oriented vertically or horizontally. Uh, last time in, in the previous episode, I mentioned the book, uh, The Book, The Life Story of a Technology by Nicole Howard, which we were using as one of our references. And Howard draws attention to a number of basic 
practical limitations of the scroll, some of which I'd never considered before, but I thought these were really interesting in, in helping us think about what would cause the transition from the scroll to the codex over time. So even with scrolls, you might think that the idea of pages, having pages in a document, you know, these sort of like blocked out sections of the text, uh, that that would emerge with the codex because it's natural to leaf through the pages. But Howard points out that there was sometimes a need for something like the concept of a page, even in a scroll, because just imagine trying to read a scroll. Imagine you are writing in a script that flows horizontally, like English. It goes from left to right. And you're working with a scroll that unravels horizontally. Do you write one line that goes the entire 50 feet or whatever of the entire scroll and then back up, rewind the entire thing and then start on the second line? I mean, that's obviously impractical. So instead, Howard writes that sometimes scribes would mark off columns of text of some manageable length, maybe a few inches wide. And then once the column was filled down to the bottom, you would start at the top of a new column. Basically, these would be pages just like in a book, except you would roll and unroll them instead of leafing through them. But she also points out a really obvious disadvantage of the scroll, and this is uh, in addition to the need to rewind your when you're done with the scroll. It is going to be really tedious to jump to places in the middle or end of a document to reference something. Mm. Uh, so imagine it's you know the Bible and you want to reference a particular verse. Early books might might not even have had page numbers, like foldable you know codex books might not have had page uh, numbers on the pages, but. Imagine it, even without page numbers to refer to, it's just going to be so much easier to leaf through and find a later passage in a codex than it is going to be uh, to roll through and find a later passage in a scroll, mostly due to the ease of page flipping as a mechanical action as opposed to the rolling and unrolling action. This is interesting. It makes me think of, of e-books once again, because yeah, for, for my own money, well, first of all, I want to say that sometimes I'll use e-books when researching this podcast. And in those cases, I'll use a browser-based um, like Kindle reader, uh, which allows me to jump around a lot and do word searches and so mm-hmm. forth, uh, that mm-hmm. is a little more flexible. But for if, for my like more personal reading, if I'm reading a novel uh, in ebook form, I'll use my Kindle. And when I'm using the Kindle, I have the experience uh, that is more like a scroll, where I find that I'm I'm generally going just straight through it. And if I jump around, I risk losing my spot. And part of that, maybe I just don't know how to use the Kindle properly. I'm, you know, it might be a little user error on, on my part. But for the most part, I feel like I've just got to keep going. I can't jump around. I can't go back. And if it is a book that I know has uh, like a glossary at the end or some sort of a encyclopedia related to the world, something like, uh, say, an R. Scott Baker book, uh, then I'm just not going to get that in, a, in an electronic form. I'm going to get the hard copy so mm. I can flip around, so I could go to the back and look up characters or places or wars and see how they relate to the, the, the spot that I'm reading in. Yeah, my experience is exactly like yours. I find that if it's uh, so when I'm talking about an ebook, if it's a book I'm using for a reference, I really only want to read it on a desktop so that I can like use the mouse to navigate with the slider and use the search function easily and all that. If it's a book that I'm just reading for pleasure, I'd rather read it like on my phone. Uh where I can just leaf through the pages one at a time. But yeah, in in that format, it is tedious to try to flip back and forth to end notes or whatever. 
You know, I have to drag in Dungeons and Dragons a little bit here. I don't know to <laughs> what extent this was intentional, but one thing that you see in Dungeons and Dragons with spell books and spell scrolls is that a spell book is something you reference. It's something like your your wizard character carries around or picks up and learns new spells from, but a spell scroll is this this more like magical text that is consumed as you read it to read the scroll is to is to cast the spell that is contained in the magical writing in the scroll itself and then afterwards it is gone that's very interesting i mean that seems to reflect some kind of knowledge about the differences of th- these two formats yeah. uh, and it does make you wonder about the different psychological effects of reading cultures based on a scroll versus reading cultures based on a on a codex right yeah, I can't help but wonder how it alters the metaphor of internal narrative, you know, to have to flip rather than to scroll. Now, now, granted, I imagine literacy was, you know, not widespread enough for the technological metaphor to be that meaningful, you know, to the, the, the majority of the population in ancient times. But it, it's interesting to think about. I also think it's interesting to think about personal reading, uh, like the reading that, you know, someone does uh, on their own in a quiet room as inherently invoking an internal narrative or voice, as opposed to the external narrative voice that you would get through, say, communal storytelling or communal singing, you know, these other modes of sharing a a story or a text with other people. Uh, it, it also, you know, it makes me wonder about how the the format, the scroll versus the codex, would cause people to think differently about what books were for. Like if a scroll-based culture, I wonder, would be more likely to suggest that you should read through an entire book at once in order rather than using it as something to consult isolated sections from. Uh, on one hand, you know, I wonder that, and that is kind of a commonsensical uh bit of induction from the idea of a scroll. But honestly, then again, I would say I don't necessarily see a lot of direct evidence of this. Like, it does seem like ancient religious texts in scroll cultures were pretty thoroughly consulted for isolated quotes in a in a piecemeal fashion. I mean, I think about like the rabbinical tradition in Judaism, which was very scroll-based at the time. Uh, but then again, I don't know. Like, um, I, I wonder, here's another thing. Does a scroll culture maybe place more emphasis on the memorization of books and narratives that you read? Hmm, maybe so. And and I also can't help but think maybe part of this is just we are we are not scroll-based uh, individuals. Ours is not a scroll-based culture. So, of course, we we see, like, we imagine the, the regular use of scrolls as being somewhat alien and clumsy. But I guess if one is versed in the use of scrolls, if one is accustomed to it, you know, obviously you're going to have, uh, you know, more flexibility in using one. Totally. I, I, I do get the impression that that it is generally just easier, you know, like you like there are strict efficiency advantages to the codex over the scroll, but that those are magnified by being unfamiliar with how to use the scroll. Yeah, I think that's fair. But then uh, so I want to go back to another thing Nicole Howard talks about, which it, I hadn't really thought about much, but th- this is interesting as well. So to read a scroll, you often needed to use either both hands at the same time or you needed to set it on a desk with a with a pair of weights to hold the open section down and keep it from rolling around. So uh, so th- like think of the ease with which you can hold a book, a codex book open in one hand and write down notes or copy text with the other hand or with some books, you know, if it's a, a very nicely bound book and it's got the right balance of weight and everything, you don't even need one hand. You can just set it down on a desk and leave it open or put it on a reading stand and it stays 
open to your place. Scrolls were usually nowhere near this convenient, and uh, and I think we've often talked about the underappreciated evolutionary advantage of technologies or methods that allow free hands while in use. I think this is very clearly a case of that. Yeah, I mean, certainly when you get into the use of these various grimoires, uh, these uh, these sacred books, uh, you know, they're they're often intended to be taken with you. You know, a lot of times they are, they are handy travel volumes of important texts that may be carried on your person as opposed to, you know, left in the scriptorium. And I mean, if we're going to use a biological analogy, obviously books are things much like genes that get reproduced through copying. And Mm -hmm. so in a way, you could almost think of books that are easier to copy as having a kind of sexual selection advantage, right? Like it's easier for them to reproduce. If a book is easier to make a copy of because you can hold it in one hand or set it down easily while you copy it onto another sheet. I mean, I wonder if that literally results in just more copies of those types of books getting made. Yeah, I mean, it's, I know it ultimately makes it more readable. And like we said in the last episode, a book that is not read or cannot be read in some ways isn't a book. Like, it, like so much of it is about the, the transference of information and not just the collection of information. Yeah, totally. Uh, so here's another interesting issue Howard raises. When you're pulling a, a book like we have today off the shelf, do you have a hard time figuring out which book to grab? I mean, usually no, right? Because the, the titles are right there on the spine. It's totally easy to find what you're looking for. Right. And even if the spine does not have the title or the spine has been taped over, etc., you just flip it open. You go right to the, the title page, the copyright page. You can find all the information you need. Right. The issue of identifying documents quickly from within a large collection was nowhere near this easy in scroll-based cultures of the ancient world. Howard writes, quote, Readers of scrolls dealt with the problem of identification by applying small tags to the upper edges of scrolls. In Greek, these were called syllabos, which is where we get the uh, the term syllabus. Uh, and she goes on, while the Romans referred to them as titulus, which is where we get the term title. Tags made it easier to organize and identify scrolls, but there remained the problem of storage. Being rounded, they did not lend themselves to neat stacking. Instead, scrolls were placed in groups in a stone or wooden jar known in Greek as a bibliotheca. And there's a great piece of terminology, like etymology there. Think of how this jar library, this jar that had scrolls in it, influenced the names for library buildings in the Romance languages today. You know, the Spanish word for a library is biblioteca. Absolutely, yeah. Though there's a funny, perhaps false etymology that always followed from that in my head, which is uh, also the Spanish word discoteca for discotheque, which makes me think it's like the disc library. (laughs) That probably doesn't quite work out right. But Howard also acknowledges that bookmaking in the ancient world was not a uniform industry, right? It wasn't like they had, you know, factories that would uh, that would print all these books in this exactly similar way. For many centuries, scrolls were the standard, but you would find weird exceptions here and there. And she cites the examples of books made out of papyrus and parchment that were stored not in scrolls, but by folding like a map or folding Mm -hmm. in an accordion style. And while this format was unusual at the time, that accordion-style fold may well have set an important precedent because the accordion-style fold, if you think about it, would have actually allowed for finding a place in a document more easily with a flipping motion through the folded sections rather than the tedious rolling and unrolling of a scroll. 
And of course, we still see this form um, all the time, not only with maps, uh, but also with uh, menus and more importantly, brochures. Oh, totally. Though just trying to imagine like like those big maps that fold out and you got to find the right way to fold it back or you'll be putting the wrong direction creases in when you try to. Oh, yeah. And it'll be uh, it won't be flat. It'll be like a little uh, little puffy and then it doesn't actually go back where you're stowing your maps. Yeah. Imagine trying to to map fold your edition of Moby Dick. That sounds like a nightmare. Uh, but so where does the actual codex come in? Remember, the, the codex format, again, is the book that's still in use today and involves stacks of pages folded inward, fastened at a spine, which you read by leafing through one page to the next. We mentioned in the last episode that it seems like the codex started to be produced in the Roman world around the first century. Uh, Nicole Howard points to a very important predecessor technology, though, which likely gave rise to the codex. And this is a technology known as the diptych. So the easiest way to imagine a diptych is to picture a hardback book cover without any pages inside it. Uh, So a diptych would usually consist of two solid flaps made out of something hard, like wood usually, like uh, she she says often ebony or boxwood. And they would be attached at the edges with some kind of hinge. So you could sew them together with, uh, with string or thread or with leather straps. And this would allow them to open and close like the cover of a book. And the diptych was used generally as a temporary storage space for information. So the inside surfaces of these flaps that open and close would be coated with wax, and then writing could be scratched into the wax with a sharp implement or with a stylus, and then the wax surface could be reused simply by rubbing out the indentations or scratches bearing the writing, essentially erasing the board and preparing it to record new information again. And these could be used for all kinds of things, for taking notes about something, for sending a message to someone. It was a general purpose, reusable writing surface. But then there comes in a mystery. So we know that there was this diptych device, but we don't know who or when it it first occurred to to simply sew pages of parchment or papyrus in between the flaps of the diptych. Uh, We don't know who came up with this idea, where it first emerged. We know we we think it probably happened first in the first century CE uh, because we have some archaeological evidence of codices from within the first century. And the Latin poet Marshall, who lived from 38 to 104 CE, mentions this invention. Uh, He talks about it in some verses that he wrote and published in the the 80s, I believe between the years like 84 and 86, talking about how awesome these new parchment codices are. And he he tells you specifically in his poem where you can buy them. Which I like because poems of today that, you know, they don't usually just like include free advertisements for shops for things. Um, <laughs> Which is a shame. They should, they should really monetize that. Right, exactly. So I found a translation that was cited in a, in a BBC article by a writer named Keith uh, Houston or Houston that I'm going to re- refer back to in a minute. Uh, but this translation of the, the section from Marshall's verses goes, You who long for my little books to be with you everywhere and want to have companions for a long journey, buy these ones which parchment confines within small pages. Give your scroll cases to the great authors. One hand can hold me. (laughs) 
which is great. You know, he's like, oh, it's so sad. You can't travel with my books because they're on scrolls. Well, you can now take them with you on, take me with you on the road. And then, uh, yeah, all the, all those, uh, you know, the, the homers and whatever, you can cram them into a scroll, stick them in a jar somewhere. That's fine. <laughs> No, this is great. It's like saying, you know, my my books, you know, I mean, this in the work. I'm not a, one of the great authors, but my work will be a part of your life. Right. Uh, yeah. And then he goes on to say, uh, oh, by the way, here's where you can get them. Uh, so that you are not ignorant of where I am on sale and don't wander aimlessly through the whole city, I will be your guide and you will be certain. Look for Secundus, the freedman of learned Lucensis, behind the threshold of the Temple of Peace and the Forum of Pallas. So there you go. I mean, look him right up. <laughs> but it does make me wonder, like, how recent of an invention this was. Like, was there only one shop in the Roman Empire selling selling the codex at this time? Or was it like, you know, did people generally sort of know what they are, but he was trying to spread the word? Or I don't know. It's not quite clear. I mean, it could have been, in a, in a sense, kind of like the, like the early days of like the iPhone or the iPad, right? Mm-hmm. You, maybe you couldn't get them everywhere. You had to go to that Apple store, right? This was the right. uh, uh, Secundus had the Apple store of the day. <laughs> yeah, look up Secundus, and then you can take me everywhere. I love it. So, uh, so even though Marshall thought that the parchment codex was great, it did not immediately take off. Instead, for hundreds of years, books within the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean region would remain this mix of codices and scrolls, with codices slowly gathering greater popularity over the decades. I've seen some sources assert that the codices became mainstream in maybe like the third or fourth centuries. Uh, Howard says that it wasn't really until the fifth century that the codex became extremely common, commonplace. But whenever you date the accomplishment of the the codex takeover, it's clear that it wasn't overnight. It was a long, slow march. And there, there's another really interesting thing that I learned. I was reading an article uh, for the BBC by by this author Keith Houston or Houston, who the author of a book called "The Book: A Cover to Cover Exploration of the Most Powerful Object of Our Time," and he points out an interesting cultural trend that emerges that ties book technology to specific religious groups. Uh, he writes, "Quote: Rome's pagan majority, along with the Jewish population of the ancient world, preferred the familiar form of the." scroll. The empire's fast-growing Christian congregation, on the other hand, enthusiastically churned out paged books containing gospels, commentaries, and esoteric wisdom. And since I've read this in several other sources, that there seemed to be this this uh, preference for the Codex specifically, I mean, among Christians generally, but specifically, I believe, among the Christians of North Africa. And it, it it's interesting to wonder, I don't know if there's an answer for why in particular the Codex took off with Christians within the region and and only more slowly spread to the other religious groups. I mean, one one can only assume that it just had to do with the advantages of codices and how they uh, particularly applied to those groups. I mean, maybe it's the mobility, uh, for instance. Right. So, yeah, we know several things about them. They're they're maybe easier to leaf through quickly and reference things. They're easier. They're smaller and more compact. That you can take them, you know, carry them around more easily. I mean, when I think about some of the great early. Uh, codices in in the archaeological record a lot of them that come to mind are christian documents you know like the mm-hmm. the books of the nagamati library and stuff like that yeah yeah i mean also you could get into the, the fact that, that uh, perhaps they're easier to secret away that could be possible as well yeah 
All right. On that note, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we will dive into the world of Mesoamerican codices. All right, we're back. So uh, you're probably some of you are probably wondering. Well, what about uh, codices from other parts of the world? In fact, some of the more uh, famous codices from elsewhere in the world are, for instance, the Mayan codices. Oh yeah. And uh, despite the name, you know, th- these were these were not uh, codices in the strictest sense of the word. Um, these were typically long folded sheets. Um, that were uh, they were more in keeping with that um, that accordion style system we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, and so yeah, if you're being very strict about the definition of a codex, is as you know having whole flipping pages front and back, uh, this is not going to fit that description. But they are <laughs> incredible works, and they reveal a, a great deal about say Mayan culture. Now I, I've seen them referred to as screenfold codices, and uh, and uh, and some writers such as Victor Wolfgang von Hagen author of um, 1943's Paper and Civilization, they are very firm on the position that these were definitely books, that you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't try and like skirt them out of the, the, you know, the way of the, the, the book uh, categorization. Like these were books, uh, to be very clear. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we're in general going with the bigger definition of the book. And scrolls are books as well for us. Yeah. So I was uh, reading more about these, um, about uh, Mayan codices in particular, in The Construction of the Codex in Classic and Post-Classic Period Maya Civilization by Dr. Thomas J. Tobin of Duquesne University, which incidentally, uh, I learned today, Werner Herzog attended school there in the 1960s. Huh. Everything comes back to Herzog. Uh, though they're, 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 again, we, have a, we do have a, a South American connection there with Herzog, of course. But uh, at any rate, um, Tobin points out that the Romans were making advancements in what we think of as the Codex between 100 and 700 CE, as we were previously discussing. But the, at that, during that same time period, the Mayan civilization in Mesoamerica was making advances in their own recording of information on paper. He writes that the Maya developed paper pretty early in the millennium. Based on archaeological evidence, they were making bark paper in the early 5th century CE. Basically, the idea is that they were already using bark cloth tunics, and from that developed hun, a writing surface that could be used to record information. Now, the cloth in question was apparently a kind of tapa cloth, and it was made from not the outer bark, but the inner bark of certain trees. And this evolved into papermaking uh, over time, and the result is apparently somewhat superior to papyrus by many estimations. Hmm, yeah, interesting. Uh, this is especially interesting. Here's a quote from uh, from Tobin in this uh, write-up. Quote, the Maya developed paper screen fold codices as a direct step beyond carving information into stone buildings and stele. Unlike Western papermaking, which took a more circuitous route to reach its final form, single sheets, papyrus rolls, and then leafed codices. So I found that, that interesting, this idea that, 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 again, the Maya make a, a direct jump seemingly, from carving into stone to using these codices. Huh, yeah. Now, one of the great tragedies here, of course, is that despite records of thousands of Mayan codices in the inventories of Spanish conquistadors who made contact with the Mayans in the 16th century, the vast majority of these codices were destroyed uh, later due to their, uh, either the, either they were seen as being satanic in nature, being, you know, just, you know, there, there's something dangerous about them, or they were just seen as useless, just, you know, garbage to be disposed of. And so most of them were disposed of. Um, I, I, uh, I think um, uh, what are the 
the source I was reading here, there were like there are like four complete codices of the Mayas left in the world, and that's it. You know, just this vast wealth of information. These libraries of information are just lost to us. Just just one more horror of the subjugation of the Maya people by European invaders. Um, yeah, that, um, that, that kind of destruction of knowledge is just like such a blasphemy. Yeah. So, like, just, you know, without getting into the just sort of the larger horror of that whole situation, just in terms of trying to understand how the, the Mayans made paper, you know, what was, it, what, what was their original papermaking process? It becomes difficult because then researchers have to, you know, they have to try and reconstruct their methods based on, you know, the few remaining codices, but also a lot of secondary evidence, uh, looking to modern traditions in that part of the world and sort of, you know, backtracking from that. And then, of course, engaging in a lot of experimentation. So Tobin himself uh, tries this out in this paper, uh, you know, trying to create his own Mayan paper and ultimately his own Mayan uh, codex. As best we can tell, it was probably an, an intricate process that by necessity lines up with some of the steps used in other paper-making processes. Uh, likewise, there is some guesswork involved in the evolution of the craft, how it developed uh, from that, you know, that the garment craft that we already mentioned. We ultimately, you know, know more with certainty about, say, Egyptian and Chinese papermaking, but you know, it's, it's really a shame because the Mayan technology was pretty advanced uh, it, and it hasn't received as much attention in part due to the cultural destruction. I certainly recommend anyone out there to, 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 when you get a chance, look up the Mayan codices and look at some of the examples of the surviving codices, uh, the photographs of them, because they are really fascinating with all of the, uh, the you know, the Mayan writing and glyphs inside of it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're beautiful to behold. And you, in some of the pictures, you get a real good sense of the, the, the folds that are involved here. Yeah, well, especially this emphasis on paper uh, brings me back to the materials on which writing is preserved and how fundamental that is to the the history of book technology uh, because you know we talked about in the previous episode about the various advantages of parchment and vellum versus papyrus but basically everything we're we're talking about in the ancient world is going to be relatively difficult to produce and and you're going to have a more limited supply of it than we would have of uh, say say paper today so maybe we should go back and look at uh, another branch on the paper tree here and and look at the chinese origins of paper yeah yeah though this so this is an area that we know a lot more about um so uh, yeah, previously we touched on the Chinese origins of paper uh, in roughly what I think we said 105 CE, and this is nearly a thousand years ahead of the Europeans. I think there's some dispute about the dating of the origins there of is. paper in China. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll get into some of that here. Traditionally, credit for the invention of paper is given to one Sai Lun, uh, who was an imperial eunuch, and he is said to have created paper or Zhi, uh, which Andrew Robinson in 7D and of the ancient world says was defined in contemporary dictionaries as, quote, a mat of refuse fibers from tree bark, hemp remnants, cloth rags, and old fishing nets. Yeah, uh, to complement this, I, I was reading a section in Howard about the production of paper here in, in China, and she 
says that the Chinese originally used silk fiber to make paper. Uh, and obviously this would have made a paper of a high quality, but this was going to be very expensive. Mm -hmm. And over time, this was replaced with hemp fiber, which was cheaper. And then after that replaced with the sort of uh, melange of things you're talking about. Uh, she says, uh, quote, a combination of bark, scraps of rags that had been discarded and bast fiber. And remember we mentioned bast fiber in the last episode. It's the vascular tissue of a plant that the plant uses to transport vital organic compounds produced by photosynthesis from one place to another within the plant's body. So it's kind of like a plant's arteries. You can imagine ropes and ancient paper made out of plant arteries. Yeah, kind of the scaffolding for the paper. Right. Uh, but so the process for this was that you would put all these various fibrous materials into a big vat of water, and then you would soak them through until they became a kind of pulp or paste. And then you would do your best to mix up and thoroughly emulsify the paste, and then you would press it flat to squeeze the water out. And then when it dried, you would have a, a crude form of paper. Um, and just thinking about the role of the water here, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of uh, our recent episode on soap. And it just makes me appreciate again how much usually just passes by us unnoticed regarding the deep connections between chemistry and the more human subjects like history and culture and literature, mm -hmm. like how the molecular properties of water – are so deeply entwined in life and history and everything we know because of these polar opposite charges across the length of the water molecule, the potency of those charges to dissolve and ingest the cornucopia of the material world. Water is, of course, the defining substance of all cells and life processes. Remember that quote uh, we talked about on the soap episode, yeah. the, the Hungarian biochemist Albert uh, Sint-Gyrgi, who said that, quote, life could leave the ocean when it learned to grow a skin, a bag in which to take the water with it, we're still living in water, having the water now inside. Yeah, and, and we'll continue to, to, to stress here just how important water is to this advance of, uh, of paper and ultimately bookmaking technology. It, it's enough to make you wonder if you had, say, a desert world like, um, I don't know, like, like Tatooine in Star Wars, right? Mm -hmm. Like, could a world like that, um, like what, with a world like that, what would be the chances of sentient life forms developing paper that is that, that functions in the same way our paper was. It seems like they might even have to have like a different material um, solution to the same problems. Well, yeah, I mean, it, for the same reasons you would have a hard time imagining paper, you would have a hard time imagining life forms at all, just because like, it's the same reason that water is the substance of life on Earth and the stepladder of all life and technology. It's the same reason that water is good for washing your hands and your dishes. And now it's also the same reason that it's used to make this pulp that we squeeze into paper. It's just the ultimate dissolver and ingester of all things. Uh, sorry, I guess that's kind of a digression, but you know, every now and then you just got to go down the water. Hole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like I say, we'll keep going down in the water hole in this episode. Well, well let's come back to um, uh, that idea of China, the Chinese origin of paper uh, coming in roughly 105 CE. Again, that's the traditional story. Mm -hmm. However, there is archaeological evidence that indicates that a very early form of paper might have been in use in Western China. The um, 
much earlier than this, pushing the probable beginnings of Chinese paper back to perhaps the second century BCE in tropical South and Southeastern China. Robinson even says that it's possible it began in the sixth or fifth centuries BCE, uh, as this is when we've dated the washings of hemp and linen rags to. The idea here Mm. is that someone might have accidentally discovered paper making while drying wet fibers on a mat, which indeed is is very central to some of the paper making uh, uh, techniques that we're discussing here and will continue to discuss in this episode. So if I'm understanding this right, the, the hypothesis is maybe somebody was washing some old rags and hemp and stuff in water and then left it there for a while. And then it started to kind of mush up and turn into this pulp in the water. And then they, they tried to dry it out and it formed this, this substance. Right. Though, again, this would be like a big question, Mark. It's basically saying the thing that we think people were doing to accidentally discover paper, they were doing it far before we're dating the discovery of paper. So there's a certain amount of guesswork there. Did they or didn't they? Impossible to say. Uh, I do want to note that uh, there are other historians, such as um, a History of China author, John Key, uh, who's a, a source I've, I come back to uh, uh, again and again for uh, for Chinese history-related matters. And he, for one, seems to stick to the first and second centuries CE as the origins of paper. Mm-hmm. And I think this is probably a matter of, you know, what is proven and recorded versus what seems possible based on additional evidence. Uh, so I think either way, it's it's fair to say that paper was a product of the Han Dynasty, which you know gives us a nice uh, a nice spread between uh, 202 BCE and 220 CE. Hmm. Okay, but we do know once paper was established uh, in China, it did spread out from there, right? Right. Uh, paper would have spread from China to Korea, Vietnam, and Japan, and eventually it would uh, follow the Silk Road out of the East into Central Asia and uh, then the Arab world. Um, I was reading more about this in uh, the books of James Burke, uh, specifically Connections and The Day the Universe Changed, uh, both of which were also uh, television series that I know a lot of our listeners uh, uh, grew up watching as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, So, more specifically, uh, Burke points out that uh, the Arabs end up acquiring uh, paper technology when they uh, overran um, uh, Samarkand in 751 CE, uh, during which they captured a Chinese workman who had been sent there to set up a paper manufacturing factory. Hmm. And Samarkand is, uh, that would be in Central Asia, like modern day Uzbekistan, yeah, yeah. So, like, basically, the the Chinese had paper making interests there, and uh, when Arab forces overran the city, uh, they ended up uh, uh, capturing the workmen and learned about it that way, and it, and it took off from there. Uh, by 1050, for example, the Byzantine Empire was importing Arab paper. Now, uh, there are some wonderful sections in both books where Burke talks about uh, about paper in the Arab world. Uh, in The Day the Universe Changed, uh, he points out that uh, the availability of paper, quote, encouraged the development of a highly literate community with regular postal services delivering correspondences as far away as India. And he also points to the Arab use of paper money, which played into export and import duties. Uh, Yeah, this already suggests a very interesting back and forth between material economics and literary culture, like the idea of the presence of a cheaper medium for transmitting the written word, potentially allowing a culture to become more literary just because like it's easier to produce written materials. 
Yeah, I found this to be a fascinating passage. Uh, again, just Burke talking about the, the 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 Arab world by virtue of their paper technology, just having this this highly literate community and and better communication. Yeah, and of course, paper making would go on to become an important industry in like the medieval Islamic world, and you, you can you can chart the pathway that paper took through the medieval Islamic world to medieval Europe. Uh, there was some initial resistance to to paper in Europe. I was reading about this in Howard's book, she says that, uh, quote, uh, in 1221, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II issued a decree that invalidated any government documents written on paper, such a Muslim tool being unwelcome in Christendom, which is what a, an amazingly ridiculous gesture. Uh, but she, she points out that the sanction was not effective. Uh, she says, quote, paper mills spread quickly throughout Europe, and as mills became more efficient, costs dropped. And in the 15th century, uh, to, the, to the point where paper was one-sixth the price of vellum. So it's just like the material advantages and the cheapness of paper overcame whatever kind of uh, attempted bans or cultural prejudice that that we're attempting to keep paper out of Europe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll come back to this uh, in a bit uh, yeah, because this, uh, the prejudice against the new new paper is, uh, is, is such a wonderful topic. Uh, but first, I'd like to go back to China for just a minute uh, with a word on printed books uh, because this was also really cool. I was, again, I was reading in Keys, A History of China, which is a nice suitably thick tome, but concise tome, mobile, mobile tome about the, you know, the, the <laughs> epic history of China. Uh, he discusses in one part a Buddhist book titled The Diamond Sutra, which is an old uh, uh, Mayana sutra that was translated into various languages, first in, I think, 400 CE. And it was so-called the Diamond Sutra because for those who mastered, it, mastered its teachings, it was said to cut away all worldly illusions like a diamond. Whoa. So there's a Tang Dynasty translation that was found, uh, uncovered again in 1900 CE, and it was subsequently dated to May 11th, 868 CE, and it consisted of seven printed pages uh, pasted together to form a scroll. Now, Key points out that this is sometimes wrongfully cited as the world's first printed book. But then he adds, quote, replicating images and written characters using inked blocks carved in relief, a process not much removed from that used for making molds for ceramics and metals, had been practiced in China since at least the 8th century. But it is the oldest complete printed text with a date. With a date. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, this is one worth looking up a picture of because it's really beautiful to look at. The, the art inside um, uh, is, is just absolutely beautiful. Uh, yeah, so I was reading others consider this to be the oldest surviving printed book in the world. And it's, it's worth noting, Key, Key, makes a, Key makes a point on this. Uh, this was seven centuries before Gutenberg. This was 11 centuries before the printing of India's scripts. Uh, Key contends that this was, quote, undoubtedly the most momentous of all Chinese inventions. As a result, Europe and India still have dozens of languages and literatures, but China only one. Uh, now, uh, he's, you know, making he's not saying that China only has one language uh, per se here, because obviously China has numerous languages. Um, but uh, but just talking about the consolidated, um, uh, you know, uh, focus on a single literature uh, and a single language within Chinese history. Yeah, well, I think this would go back to what we talked about in the uh, the Chinese typewriter episode, right, with the mm -hmm. idea that the 
uh, am I correct in thinking the different spoken languages of Chinese uh, would still use the same written script? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I will remind people, if you're interested in that, if you want more about Chinese language, go back and listen to that. Uh, was it one episode or two? I can't recall. I think it was just, just one. one. Yeah. One really long episode <laughs> about the Chinese typewriter. Yeah, we talked with the author uh, Thomas S. Mulaney, who wrote Chinese Typewriter, A History. In his book, uh, Keyes stresses that the real infotech revolution took place mostly during the five dynasties, ten kingdoms period, uh, which would have been 907 to 979 CE. Uh, the first use of movable type may also date to this period, he adds, but the earliest authoritative account of it being used would come a few decades later uh, in the early 11th century. All right, I think we need to take another break, but when we come back, we can discuss paper making its way to Europe. All right, we're back. Now, uh, earlier we already mentioned the idea of the influx of uh, paper-making technology into Europe through the Muslim world in the Middle Ages and some attempts to to, to stem the tide of uh, oncoming paper technology. But ultimately, any attempts of those sorts would fail. Paper was destined to be the writing material of choice. That's right. And uh, so we already discussed, uh, we, already, we already mentioned how paper from the Arab world is going to make its way into Europe. Now, specifically, it ends up spreading through the Arab world to Moorish Spain, specifically, um, I, I believe it's pronounced uh, Shativia, uh, which is south of Valencia. And this is where the Moors established paper mills. And from here, the technology spread to Christian Europe. Now, an interesting note from Burke uh, about paper-making technology in both Connections and The Day the Universe Changed, water-powered paper milling was uh, in effect by at least 1280. Again, the power of water coming into play here, mm -hmm. where, uh, where it was used in the Italian marshes. Basically, water-powered trip hammers were used in these factories to pound linen that was submerged in water to produce a white pulp, which is then spread out to dry on wire mesh and then pressed in a screw press to squeeze the water out, and then you would hang it up to dry. Uh, and then here's another fun, this is uh, classic connections here. Uh, Burke writes that the timing was just right on the mesh front, uh, because, the, again, it was like a metal mesh. And it was the work of tailors who had far less work to do following the Black Death. These were craftspeople who would have previously been stitching gold and silver threads into garments. Uh, but now, in the wake of the Black Death, there was you know, garment making was 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 less of, of a business. There was there was less of it to go around. So these very uh, craftspeople were now making these fine meshes that were so important to the paper making process. Anyway, back to the water-powered paper factories here. By the 14th century, these new advancements in, in uh, water-powered technology allowed linen rags, which were collected by rag and bone men a lot of the times, to be pounded into cheap, durable paper. And by the end of the 14th century, the price of paper in Bologna had dropped by 400%. So this was cheaper than parchment, but parchment purists, they, uh, some of them resisted the change, insisting that, well, parchment can last a thousand years, but this new paper, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd grant I think parchment probably is more durable than paper, right? I'm yeah. not but positive 400 percent uh, cheaper. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's hard to argue with that. It certainly is. Now, I want to throw in a note about rag and bone men. Now, some of you might hear that and you might think, well, this sounds like reanimate corpses uh, <laughs> that are doing the, the will of the, uh, 
of the papermakers. Uh, no, they were not. They were, uh, but they were impoverished junk dealers that traveled around England. They were also known as bone grubbers, and they did indeed scavenge bones uh, as well as junk for resale. In fact, Burke writes in Connections that the bone scavenging uh, that, you know, that was previously their main gig was all about collecting the bones for use in fertilizer. Hmm. But they then came to collect and sell old rags to the papermakers. And it was a tradition that lasted for centuries. Linen rags especially were excellent raw materials for high-quality, durable paper. Man, that brings to mind a couple of things. First of all, like this, uh, the class of people who collect things counterintuitively that they can sell to. Well, it makes me think of in ancient Rome the people who collected urine from uh, from city latrines in order to sell to you know laundries and and the various businesses oh, yeah. that used urine for you know its properties at the time. I remember, I believe it was the Emperor Vespasian who uh, first put a tax on urine in order to support something he wanted to do, and and that's where. The the, uh, the the phrase "money has no smell" comes from. You know, somebody was like challenging him on this and saying the tax on urine to raise funds—that's disgusting. And he's like, "I don't smell anything on the money." <laughs> urine also a friend of the uh, the alchemist. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, who was it who had the big old vat of urine experiment? Oh goodness, was, well, that was when we Magnus? were talking about. Uh... This is when in our history of the match we got into this. Yeah. Uh, when the invention episode about the match. Um, I forget the, the, the exact timetable there. But uh, yeah, there were some key alchemists that were um, experimenting with urine. And uh, Hennig Brand, it was well, the big vat okay, of urine. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that now. So yeah, if you want more urine based content, uh, go look up that invention episode on the matchstick. You know, for a brief literary digression, I could not help but think when you were talking about the rag and bone men, the the rag and bone collectors, uh, I couldn't help but think about the poem, The Circus Animal's Desertion by the famous Irish poet William Butler Yeats and its image of uh, the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. The, the <laughs> It, it, this is it's it's really interesting. So th this poem was written in the final years of Yeats's life, and in the early parts of the poem, he describes a kind of poetic jealousy of his younger self, based in the agony of feeling that the imagination and inspiration that came so easily to him in youth have now abandoned him, and he finds himself in old age struggling to find something meaningful or interesting to say. Uh, so, in in you know, if you if you ever felt yourself in one of those writerly moods, you will know the agony of it. Uh, but instead, he finds himself nostalgically obsessing about the characters and themes that he had written about in earlier poems of his, one of uh, those subjects being one of our favorite mythical buddies, the Irish hero Cuchulain, or Cuchulain. Ah, Oh yes. Uh, so he. So just to read a couple of these lines, he's you know he's musing on these things he used to write about all the time. He says, "And when the fool and blind man stole the bread, Cuchulain fought the ungovernable sea. Heart mysteries there. And yet, when all is said, it was the dream itself enchanted me. Character isolated by a deed to engross the present and dominate memory. Players and painted stage took all my love, and not those things that they were emblems of. 
which is an interesting admission. Like he, he's saying, I think that, you know, he once believed he was using mythical figures and stories as metaphors or allegory to convey some underlying message about principles or politics or whatever. But now admits that the underlying message was always sort of a pretense. And what he really liked were the mythical elements themselves at their face value. He liked the heroes. Mm. He liked the settings. He liked the images. Yeah, this is not a work of his I was familiar with, but, but I really like that sentiment. Uh, and, and then in the end of the poem, when he gets to that image I mentioned, he asks himself, like, well, where did these images first come from when you first, you know, when I wrote them in the beginning? And in its concluding ri- lines, he writes, uh, now that my ladder is gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Oh, man. Uh, And I know this last line is interpreted by some critics to refer to the paper on which the poem is composed, the rag and bone Mm. shop being, of course, the place where you would buy paper, I guess, or, you know, sell the stuff to make the paper. Uh, And so for another weird connection between technology and literature, I think this ending suggests to me that sometimes imagination comes out of pure labor. He's suggesting that. You know, the same way inventors are often not people dreaming up ideal machines in the solitude of an ivory tower, but people working with many hours of hands-on experience with a particular mechanical problem. And in the same way, often the poet who conjures great imagery and themes is not the one who, you know, shoots lightning bolts of genius straight out of their brain, but it's somebody who does a lot of work on the page, writing and writing lots of junk until things begin to click and beauty emerges. Just pounding the pulp until you have uh, you can make a a fine piece of parchment uh, out of uh, out of old rags. Yeah. Now uh, to go back to the the paper industry itself, uh, uh, there, there's another bit from Burke here that I wanted to share. He writes that quote as the paper mill spread, so too did the spirit of religious reform. Uh, unquote. And this would have been alongside literacy itself and scriptoriums. And as the price of paper fell, the development of eyeglasses advanced to meet the demand for literacy, mm. something we discussed in our, uh, our, uh, our uh, podcast uh, episode of Invention on the sunglasses. But there would still be too, uh, far too few scribes in Europe to meet the demands of the business world at the time. Uh, even if you were now making s- cyborg scribes via your, your spectacle technology, you know, extending the, 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 basically the, uh, you know, the life of a scribe by altering their eyes with these fabulous lenses, um, you still needed one invention yet that will really uh, you know, boost literacy enough uh, to, you know, to give you the scribes you need for the, for the business world to thrive. And that, of course, is the printing press. But that, as they say, is another story and shall be told another time. Man, I'm not done thinking about how uh, not just the contents of the books we read, but the physical form of the book has shaped our brain. I, I think that there are there are insights yet uh, left unearthed on this subject. Absolutely. All right, we're going to have to close it out for now, uh, but we hope you enjoyed our, our two-episode look at the, the invention of the book, the invention of the Codex. Uh, perhaps this is just the beginning of a, of a journey for us as we you know, come back to, uh, to additional literary inventions, uh, uh, paper inventions uh, in subsequent episodes. 
In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, for you who long for our little podcast to be with you everywhere and want to have companions for a long journey, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, look up Secundus uh, behind the, the, the Temple of Palace. Right. And when you get our podcast from Secundus, make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe for more. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.